Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's midweek sermon. My name's Tom. I'm the curate here at All Saints. And this afternoon, I'd love to speak to you from Exodus chapter 32 and to dig into this passage of scripture to see what God has to say for us as we begin the long road out of lockdown in our country. So would you grab your Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 32, second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, and read with me from verse one. We'll read half the story now and then work through the passage together. Exodus 32 and verse one. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And the story continues and we'll look through it over the next 20 minutes with Moses coming down to the people and getting rid of the idol that they'd created for themselves and then calling the Levites to himself and sending them through to purge the camp of the evil that had been done. And then finally going to God again and pleading with God to have mercy on God's people who had broken his covenant before the words had barely left the Lord's mouth. But let's pray together and then we'll dig into this passage and see what God has to say for us today. God, our Father, we thank you for your gift of your word. And we pray that as we study it together now, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see our sinful state before you, that you would lead us to repentance and that you would open our eyes to see how good your son, our saviour, Jesus Christ is and the mediation that he has brought between us and you. We pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts afresh with your love and lead us to follow you more closely in the next week. In Jesus name. Amen. 
Well, as we begin the long journey out of lockdown, I think that this story in Exodus 32 from the wilderness years of the Israelites has a lot to teach us. Because one of the effects of lockdown is that we've all individually and corporately been forced to reevaluate the things that really matter. It's raised questions for, for each of us. It's been true for us as a church as we've been unable to meet together and true for me and I'm sure for you as an individual. Questions about what our priorities really are, what really matters to us, what's important in our lives. Questions about what our faith is built on. Questions about what God is trying to do in and through us in such a strange and difficult season. About what God might want to break or change in our lives as we're forced to have everything else be stripped away. And in lockdown, I think many of us have been brought face to face with brutal facts about our own lives and the state of our communities that we perhaps rather have ignored. I think we're being called as individuals and as a people to repent of where we've been going wrong and to return to God again, as the Israelites have to in this story. Because in Exodus 32, we pick up the narrative of the people of Israel at a really critical time. It's the foundation of the nation of Israel. It's the point where God gives his covenant, the Ten Commandments and the law, to the people of Israel after they've escaped from Egypt and prepares them to enter the promised land and to become a kingdom for the first time. And yet right at the beginning of the nation of Israel, at the last verse of chapter 31, chapter 31, verse 18, God has just finished giving the law to Moses. The foundation is complete. Within moments, the people have deserted God. They've become corrupt. They've turned away. They've built a calf and, it, and broken the first commandment, literally as soon as it had been given to them. And what this means is that the people of Israel's relationship with God would have to be founded from the very beginning only on God's grace and mercy to them, because they've actually put their relationship with God in jeopardy even before it's really got going. And I think there's a lesson for all of us, too, about how God can lead us closer to himself in lockdown. That as everything else is stripped away, repentance has to be the foundation of our walk with God each and every day. And that's something God's been speaking to me about this week, as I'll share later. But in chapter 32 and verse 1, we get the beginning of the story. And through the chapter, basically, it's structured in six oppositions. In, in verse 1 to 6, it's the opposition of Aaron to the people as they create this calf image. And then from verses 7 to 14, which I read, you see the dialogue between Moses and God. Moses pleading with God to have mercy on his people. Uh, and then after that, in verses 15 to 20, you get Moses against the people coming in judgment for what they've done. And then in verses 21 to 24, Moses bringing Aaron to task for what he's done and the conversation about what has happened. And then in verses 25 to 29, you have Moses and the Levites, Moses calling those who are faithful to God to come to him. And then finally, in verses 30 to the end, Moses going back to God to again intercede for him to have mercy on the people. And through it all, each of those sections actually puts emphasis on Moses' figure as a mediator between God and humanity. It's because Moses wasn't there in verses 1-6 that it all goes wrong and Aaron is proven to be a weak leader of the people who's not prepared to stand up for God when the people come with their demands. Because despite the 
the miracle of the Exodus. God has just brought his people out of slavery, parted the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army, led them through the wilderness. Despite the majesty of Sinai, God appearing with miracles on the mountain and giving the Ten Commandments. The people are so quick to get bored, to get impatient. They say, what happened to this fellow Moses? We don't know where he's gone. They tell Aaron to make them gods. They create an idol out of their gold earrings. And then they say, shockingly, in verse four, these are the gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. They are so quick to turn away from what God has commanded them. And yet the thing about the golden calf is that the Israelites aren't actually replacing Yahweh, the Lord, as their God. That's not what they think they're doing. Um, The golden calf was the symbol used by the neighbouring peoples, the Canaanites, to symbolise the greatest and most powerful God, the most high God, El. And you see in verse 5 that Aaron actually stands in front of the calf and says, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. And then in verse 8, God says about the Israelites, they've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. The Israelites haven't replaced God but they've recast him in a different image. They actually think that this golden calf is the image through which they will worship Yahweh the Lord. What they've done then is they've not turned to a different God to worship, but they've made the one God in their own image. They've put an image to God that is the image that the cultures around them think God looks like. They've basically said, listening to the Ten Commandments that God's given them, that you shouldn't make an image of God, that they know better than God's way and that they want to worship God in their own way. They actually want God to be the kind of God that they think he should be. It's the eternal human sin to put ourselves in the centre to live by our priorities, not by God's, to colonise God with our own ideas, to put ourselves in the middle, not to abandon God, but to change him and to build God in their own image. It's what Stephen in Acts chapter seven, talking about this moment, would say that they turned in their hearts to Egypt, that actually they were more driven by the culture around them, by the worldviews of the pagan people, than they were driven by what God had just said in his covenant and his law. Uh, And the point for, for us is clear. It's a message about the deceitfulness of the human heart, about the eternal temptation that we have to make God in our own image, to put ourselves at the center. It's about the fact that we're sinful even from birth and that all the time there's this temptation to go our way and to call it God's way, to actually use religion, like maybe not for us physically building a, a calf out of gold, but using things that look religious and good in our own eyes to allow ourselves to do what actually we'd prefer to do and to not and to ignore what God is saying. And what this means is that in verse seven, the Lord says to Moses, go down because your people who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. Notice God doesn't say my people. Um, straight away, he, he's, he's disavowing ownership of the people because the covenant that he's just finished making with the people of Israel has been broken instantly. They've broken the first commandment. The relationship of the people of Israel, where the idea was they would keep God's laws and so they'd be holy and so God could dwell with them and they could be in relationship with God is already broken. And so God says to Moses, these are your people. They're not my people anymore. They've turned away from me. And the rest of the story of chapter 32 and chapter 33 is how the people can possibly be in a restored relationship with God when they've already broken that covenant. And what we see is that any relationship that people, any relationship that they then or we now have with God must rest entirely on his mercy and his grace because it can't rest on our merit because our hearts are so deceitful and we turn to sin again and again and again. 
And the hero of the story is Moses. Moses, who is at each point a mediator between God and man. He represents the people to God when he's pleading with God in verses 11 to 14 to have mercy on the people. And then when he goes down, he represents God to the people. He stands in judgment over Israel. He says, you cannot do this. And he comes to punish them in the name of the Lord. Moses is the mediator between God and man. He's standing in the gap. And the only reason that Israel is saved in chapter 32 is Moses' complete commitment to the people. In verse 32, at the end of the chapter, he actually goes to God and he says, please forgive this people, but if not, then blot me out. He's willing to lay down his life for the people because he is so committed to them. He identifies with them so much that he's willing to lay down his own life. When God's offered Moses, he said to Moses in verses 9 and 10, God said, I'll destroy this nation and I'll make you into a great people. He said that he'll start again with Moses. So this situation only ends well for Moses. But he's willing to give all of that up because he loves God's people so much. And not only is Moses representing the people and committed to them, but he is confident in God's promises and he's completely devoted to God. Do you see what he says to God in verses 11 to 14? He appeals to God's glory in verse 11 and 12. He says, look, you've brought this people out. Don't let the Egyptians think that you couldn't bring the people out. He's appealing to God's reputation. And then even more in verse 13, he says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. He's appealing to God's promises. He's saying to God that God has promised to save this people. So will not God be faithful to his word? He's quoting God's word back to him and holding God accountable to God's own promise. The people of Israel in chapter 32 ruin their relationship with God before it's even got off the ground. But they are saved and restored because a mediator stands between them and God. A mediator who is committed to the people even at the cost of his life and who is confident in God's promises and totally devoted to God's way. And through the intercession of Moses, the mediator, God relents, turns away from punishing the people and eventually recommits to the covenant and reforges it in chapter 34. If Moses hadn't done that, that might have been the end of the experiment of Israel as the people of God. And so what we see in the story of Golden Calf is a wonderful picture of the gospel that is true for you and for I. That in Jesus, we too have a great mediator between us and God, someone who's so committed to us that he's willing to lay down his life that we might come and know God. And who's so committed to God that he only does what he sees the Father doing, that he resists all temptations to the contrary, that he stands firm and true to God's holiness and his purity. And yet is so committed to us that he lays down his life to bring us home. That is the good news that this passage points to, that God's people can be saved through God's mercy. And wonderfully, at the end of chapter 32, the start of chapter 33, the people realise this. They've started off in rebellion against God. But then in chapter 33 and verse 4, the people realise that if they live separately from God, if they go forward to take the land, but God doesn't go with them, that it will go badly. They realise how much they need God and they, they mourn, they repent, they, they take off their ornaments, they dress in dark clothes. They, they make it clear they're making a serious show of repentance. They are committed to their need for God. And Moses goes to intercede again with God for them, say, Lord, would you not go with this people and stay with them? And it's the same choice that you and I have today, have every day. And it's what God's been talking to me about this week. It's not the choice to sin or not. 
Um, so often we sin when we don't actually want to. Um, and we will all sin. God knows that we are incapable of living perfectly. We're flawed and broken even from birth. So we don't have the choice about whether or not we will sin. We will fall short. But we have the choice about how we respond when we fall short. The people messed it up pretty much as badly as you can. And yet ultimately they responded with repentance, mourning before God for the depths of their sin and asking him to have mercy on them anyway. And because of Moses' mediation, God did just that. You and I were guilty of the same sin. The Israelites recast God as a golden calf in the way that the nations around them thought God should be. You and I every day face that same temptation to recast God in our own image to build God around our lives rather than our lives around God, uh, to trade God's words for our preferences, to live more for the values of our world and our culture than our creator and our king. And we're in a moment of cultural reflection and repentance at the moment, aren't we, with all of the Black Lives Matter protests after the appalling murder of George Floyd just a few weeks ago. We're at a point where our culture as a whole is asking those difficult questions of itself and saying, are we more guilty of this systemic racism than perhaps we had realised before? We're in a moment where our culture is asking questions about what is wrong with us and what is wrong with our culture at its core. But you see, racism isn't the ultimate problem. Racism is a symptom of a much deeper cancer, the cancer of sin, of the human propensity to put ourselves in the centre, me before you, me before God, me for me, not laying my life down for others and not devoted utterly to God and his way. That's the problem of sin, the problem of idolatry that puts anything other than God in the centre of our lives. And it's from that centre of sin that all of these other issues like racism flow out. And God's been leading me in a journey of repentance this week. Specifically, I've realised that over the last couple of weeks, my values and my priorities have been almost indistinguishable from the world around me. I've had my eyes focused on my own material comfort, on the things of this world, on rest and pleasure, on the impact of the coronavirus on the lockdown to my own lifestyle and future. I've been thinking about myself, not about God, not about others, not about the world to come, not about what I'm called to live my life for. My eyes have been on myself. And so I've begun to repent this week and to say to God that I'm not satisfied with the the shallow level of my own faith and that I long so much to be changed, to be more like Jesus. I long so much to be able to, to follow God bravely and boldly wherever he will call me to go, not concerned about myself because I'm laying down my life for him and for others. And I want to ask you, would you join me in this journey of repentance this week? Chronicles chapter seven says, God speaking to his people says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and come and heal their land. Will we recognise the places that we've fallen short of God's desire for us, the way that he wants us to be, the good way of life and the good priorities and the good orientation towards God that he's shown us ultimately in Jesus? The wonderful truth is that most important encounters with God actually happen on our own. This week, I've been really missing our time together as a church family. I've been missing Sunday church and small groups. I've been missing meeting with other people face to face. 
But it's often true that we encounter God most deeply by ourselves in the quiet place, that it's in that place that God can search us and know our hearts, show us those places where we've been lying to ourselves and where we've been led astray into sin and idolatry and to lead us in a, in a conviction of where we've gone wrong in confessing to him those places where we fall short and a repentant cry that we must have God and that we must have his forgiveness for that is our only hope. Can I ask you, where, where might God be stirring in you a holy discontent at this time? Discontent with the state of your own prayer life, a discontent with the state of your own walk with God, a discontent with the state of your own love and character and relationship with others, a discontent with your own um, perspective on what's happening in our nation and our world. Where is God showing you the need to mourn and repent for the sin that blights our lives, that cuts us off from God's presence, which is the only true form of eternal life? Where do we need to repent from the ways that we've been twisted inward to put ourselves at the centre, the ways that we've created God in our own image? Where do we need to come with him, come to him mourning for our sin and asking him to come and heal us and to pour out his presence on us and to lead us again in new life? Well, the glorious good news of the gospel is that when we come to God in repentance, we have a mediator pleading for us who is even greater than Moses. Moses intercedes for the people here and he says, if you need to, blot out my life. But Jesus doesn't just offer his life, he gives it, pays the ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. And in Exodus, if you read the whole chapter, the people are still punished for their sin. Many of them are killed by the Levites as a punishment for their idolatry. It's a harrowing and awful story. But the new covenant that Jesus comes to bring means that Jesus takes the death that you and I deserve to die. The righteous punishment for our rebellion, our idolatry against God is our death. That's justice. But Jesus takes it for us. He, he goes to the heart of the cancer of sin that blights our lives and our world and he extinguishes it in his body on the cross. He makes it possible for us to be brought in to the throne room of God. It's grace in place of grace, a doorway of God's favour and his mercy, not earned by us because we fall so far, so far short, but the gates thrown wide by Jesus who longs to welcome us in, our mediator between God and man, giving his life for us to bring us home. My friends, let me ask you, would you join me this week in a journey of repentance, reflecting on the ways where we've fallen short, reflecting the ways where we have not lived as God would desire us to, reflecting the ways where our faith is so shallow and superficial and our orientation is twisted inward to ourselves. And would you join me in, in a holy discontent for that shallowness and contending for a faith that is devoted to God, that is beginning the day on our knees, crying out in prayer for him to come and send revival on our world, for him to flood our lives and our church and our community with his presence, because he is our only hope. Would you join me now in coming to our great mediator, Jesus, the Son of God, who stands in the gap between us and God, who bridges that uncrossable chasm between God's majesty and our sin and reconciles the two in his body that we might come home to God and know his presence, no matter how much our sin. Let's pray to him and come before him in repentance this week. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made it possible so that even when we fall short every moment of every day, we come to you who is for us, who understands our weakness, who loves us and has reconciled us to God on the cross. Lord, I, I just want to say that I am sorry 
for this, the many times that I fall short. I'm sorry for the lack of love in my heart. I'm sorry for the selfishness of my disposition. I'm sorry for the comfortable level of my faith and how much I live for the values of the world around me and not pursuing you no matter what the cost. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit afresh today, that you would lead me closer to you, that you would help me to contend for a faith that is entirely devoted to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead me in the paths of grace that Jesus died to bring me. Lord, I thank you for your wonderful offer of love held out on the cross. And I pray for me and for all my brothers and sisters listening to this talk, that as we read your word, you would convict our hearts and that you would lead us in truth and obedience and intimacy with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.